Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Domestic violence and sexual abuse are not easy topics to discuss, but every church leader must know how to address them. Joining your hosts today are husband and wife Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, authors of books on these difficult topics. The conversation is somber, but well worth your time. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can download an MP3 from the Alliance. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. Today we're going to start by doing something slightly different. Uh, We have uh, a couple that we are interviewing today, Justin, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. And we want to start by finding out just how stable and secure their marriage is by playing a version of the newlyweds game. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Justin and Lindsay a series of questions to which they will give a spontaneous answer and then their partner will reflect upon the accuracy or otherwise of the response. And at the end, uh, I will use my all of my pastoral sensitivity to uh, make a recommendation to them on uh, how to pursue a further marital harmony. Are you ready, Justin and Lindsay? We are ready. Uh, I got my seatbelt on. And I'll... I'll- I didn't know you were into virtual marriage counseling. I like <laughs> I am a very touchy-feely guy. Wherever I am, I'm, I'm a touchy-feely guy. <laughs> okay, Justin, the first question is for you. When your wife says, honey, they're playing our song, what song are they playing? Oh, that's going to be uh, um, No Ship Coming In from Lost Dogs. Ooh. I have no idea what that is, but Lindsay, is that an accurate account or not? That would be it. He wow. did good. Fantastic. It was either going to be that or Marvin Gaye. Um, let's, let's get it, get on. it on. <laughs> <laughs> I see he went with the safe answer. Well, I went for the romantic. We the, the song "No Ship Coming In" from Lost Dogs was actually a song we had played at our wedding. So that that really is kind of our song. But she is right. The song that's kind of like the more typical. That's our song that we'd go dance to is, is Let's Get It On. That is, well, wow. you, interesting. That is 100% record so far. <laughs> uh, Lindsay, this one's for you. Okay. What does Justin do to get out of trouble? What does he do to get out of trouble? Oh, dear. <laughs> we can guess what he does to well, get into I trouble. Don't know, <laughs> I don't know if Justin, Justin ever gets into is. trouble. I don't know if he ever gets himself into trouble. He, um, he's really good at apologizing and owning up to stuff, probably. So I would say that would be his <laughs> M.O. He likes to apologize wow, and take good. ownership. Justin, is that an accurate account? Uh, yeah, that is. I do. I do like. I assume it's my fault. So she is correct <laughs> on that. I assume, I assume that I'm wrong and I'm quick to assume responsibility and apologize. But on the if I'm trying to get out and um, because I'm embarrassed or something. I'll play dumb, and uh, I, I just won't oh, get. Yeah. What are you talking? Oh, all this trick in the book. <laughs> is but that what th- that is? <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to issue a disclaimer at this point for any husbands and wives who are listening to this podcast. Justin is exceptional. You should not expect the standard of behavior from your typical uh, husband. That's true. That is true. Justin, when was the last time you got Lindsay flowers? Wow. Oh, I think, to, wow, to, I think today. 
I don't, I don't know if it was her birthday or if it was, I think it was her birthday. It's her anniversary, because they're oh, both and, like a week in a, within each other. I know, I know for sure anniversary, but I don't know if I got them for your birthday. <laughs> no, it wasn't my birthday, because remember we, we went on our trip? Yes. So it was the anniversary. We were in Nicaragua on my birthday. So he took me to Nicaragua on my birthday, but flowers the week prior would have been anniversary. Fantastic. Again, I think we should use the disclaimer, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, I would want to say, don't typically take your wife to Nicaragua on her birthday. She may not thank you for it. <laughs> well, I mean, she she does she did pick. Let's get it on as our as our theme song. So I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm highly motivated, Lindsay. Third, yes. qu- a second question. What percentage of the housework would Justin say he does, and what percentage does he actually do? Um, what, do you, what is housework? Does housework include bills and all that stuff? Or are we talking no, no, like no, we're talking vacuuming, washing up, scrapping. laundry, hardcore. Well, washing the dishes. I'd say it's probably 30-70 with me doing 70%. He would probably say that, the same. Justin, is that an accurate account? Yeah, I would say I do about 25. Uh, the number in my head was 25%, but I actually probably do about uh, 10. <laughs> wow. and, and Lindsay said he did 30. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, But I know that if I ask him... We might like, be ruining marriages this? by this interview. <laughs> <laughs> if I ask him, he'll do it. But um, You have to ask. <laughs> no, no. You do the trash. You always do the trash. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was saying is, to me, taking out the trash feels like 25% when it's really only 10. You know what? The, the next time we play this game, we need to have make sure that we, we get a much worse husband. I think we're, um, yeah. Because make sure we're fighting about something, and then I'll just be like, bah, you know, he's negative on everything. Yeah. Here's the last question, it's for you, Lindsay. Okay. What embarrassing or funny fact about Justin is something everyone knows, but he thinks no one knows? <laughs> oh my goodness! An embarrassing fact about Justin that he thinks he knows. Well, it, okay. So here's one: I make fun of his dancing style, <laughs> and when he gets out there, he puts the elbows up. Oh and the yeah, arms my husband drives the car. Well, it's like he's car. like he's driving, but he's got those elbows out flapping in the wind, and uh, <laughs> the chicken and dance. Really, yeah, he really thinks he's rocking it, and he's just <laughs> moving, and he's working it. So I'd say that's probably fun. <laughs> that is fantastic. Thanks so yeah. much for for playing that game. All oh. I can say is, I you know, you clearly have a much better and stronger marriage than I have. So there's nothing <laughs> yes. I can tell you that would help you improve. It. I want to know if Justin is aware that he's not a good dancer. Um, I've, I've slowly been made aware of that since I've been married. Um, she, she, we, we go dancing and she will say like, Hey, you're doing, she, she actually do it. She will actually mock my dancing. And while I'm on the dance floor with her, she's like, Hey, do the elbow thing. <laughs> She'll impersonate Well, at least me. she's not embarrassed by it then. That's I, nice. I, I thought it was something else. I thought I, I, I apparently have some just like, you know, weird ticks. That I'm, I'm becoming more aware of. I, I got like some type of weird Tourette's thing going on. I think, but with like like twitches on my face and stuff. So uh, <laughs> I was going for that one. Boy, you, this, the questions really divulge a lot of honesty. They pretty do. Quickly. They do. Right? And I've been given the the difficult job now of segueing into a much more serious subject. Mm, Maybe I could quote G.I. Joe that knowing is half the battle. And you guys seem to know each other pretty well. And that helps your marriage. And um, we're going to talk about how our theology and what we know about God can um, help us in some very uncomfortable topics now. You guys have written some books, um, Rid of My My Disgrace 
and is it my fault? And they address sexual abuse. Um, why is this very uncomfortable topic one that the church really needs to deal with? Like, what are the statistics really out there? What is the chance that there are people who have suffered from sexual abuse um, in our churches? I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, Rid of my disgrace. The subtitle is Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault. And Is It My Fault is subtitled Hope and Healing for Victims of Domestic Violence. And the two okay. a lot of times go hand in hand. And so um, it, it, where, wherever you see domestic violence, almost 100% of the time, there's going to be some type of sexual abuse going on. But they're, they're a little bit distinct on some. But the numbers are one in four women and one in six men are or will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. And, and those are, those are conservative numbers. We're, we're not, we, we went for, uh, numbers that no one's going to poke holes in. It's probably worse than that, but one in four women and one in four, one in six men are or will be victims. Domestic violence, the numbers on that are about one in four women. It's almost predominantly women are the victims. There are males who are victims of domestic abuse, but, and there's so much shame on them that getting them to admit it mm-hmm. and, and, and say that is, is really hard. But we do know about one in four, one in five women are suffering domestic abuse. And that's, that's in the United States. Worldwide, it's about one in three. Mm. And that's, those are the stats. The reason the church needs to get involved in this, I mean, Lindsay can say a lot on this. She worked as a case manager at a domestic violence shelter and a sexual, sexual assault crisis center. So she worked on the ground on both issues. Um, we met, I was working in the church and she was working as a case manager. I mean, I, I can tell you from the church why we need it because we have the gospel and only the gospel brings the hope and healing needed. But practically, Lindsay, what do you, what, what does the church need to know about these issues? Well, I think the one thing when we, Jess and I first started talking about this, we were dating and, you know, I was asking him, you know, what resources do I have to give to these women? I see a lot of women coming in, um, you know, they maybe five years later, they'd come back in and I was hearing their story and looking up their case and they had been there prior and seeing that a lot of what these secular agencies um, were able to give them was just kind of self-help, behavior modification, try this, pick yourself up, you can do this. And of course, it just was failing them because they needed something more rooted in the gospel and that God hears their cries. So then when I started asking Justin, well, what do we have to give to these women? We just started looking around and there there was not a lot of material or books that are written on this these issues that are theologically sound and practical. And a lot of pastors, Justin told me, I was shocked. He said, when you go to seminary, maybe, maybe you get like a teeny tiny course on abuse, but more likely than not, it's not happening. So a lot of pastors are just uninformed. They don't know the resources in the community. And many of them would rather just think, well, not in our church. We are, you know, we have, we have very wealthy population, our churchgoers, this would never happen in our congregation. They just would rather think this isn't going on. This is something that happens in other parts of town. So a lot of it was just the ignorance. And we just realized we needed to put something out there for pastors and caregivers and for the victims to have to know what does the Bible say, what is going on. This happened years ago, but I'm still dealing with this. So that's kind of how it all came out from from those experiences. Now, Lindsay, one of the things that uh, I wrestle with at the church where I pastor is how do you go about creating uh, a culture within the church where 
people feel able to come and tell the elders, those in authority, that this, this kind of abuse is going on. Justin alluded to the fact that, that men find it very difficult to uh, own up to being abused. And I can, you know, as a man, I can certainly sympathize with that. But clearly there's, a, there's an onus on the church to promote an atmosphere, a culture within the church itself where people feel uh, free to be able to confide some of their deepest and, and darkest issues to, to the pastor and to the elders, to those in authority. Do you have any recommendations or any thoughts on how we might go about cultivating that sure. kind of atmosphere? I do. I think two very um, simple ways. One, and we noticed this with Justin, if you as a pastor just start inserting this into your sermons um, from the pulpit, people hearing it in the congregations, just knowing, wow, my pastor mentioned this, he must or she must care about this issue. It really does break down those barriers because many times Justin would just mention it maybe, um, you know, a couple sentences or for a few minutes in a sermon and women and men came out of the woodwork and just started telling their stories, asking for resources, some, you know, right after the sermon and then some just through email or maybe later on in the week. So I think just speaking about it in the pulpit and bringing the issue to light lets people know, oh my goodness, this is something that my pastor understands. This is something we can talk about. This doesn't need to be swept under the rug like I was told for so many years. And then having classes, whether it's, you know, redemption groups or a counseling group or training um, lay leaders to be, you know, caregivers or support members that can walk alongside somebody. Bringing in counselors if your church can afford it. Um, you know, counselors that are well-versed and equipped on the, this issue, and then also are able to apply the Bible practically and theologically correct to this issue. So those are different ways that it can happen. Just, But I think just talking about it, when there's silence, it makes the victim think and just be confirmed, I must keep silent about this. Nobody wants to hear about this really messy issue. And, and Lindsay, I mean, I would, every once in a while, I might say uh, more than a sentence or two, but for the most part, when she says I would mention it in a sermon, I would literally say, hey, this is, we, we just, in this passage, we see the grace of God for those who are, you know, suffering. And that suffering could be suffering at your own hand, um, like, you know, addictions, things that you are doing that are harming you, addiction or this or this, or perhaps someone sinned against you, like sexual abuse or domestic violence. I would literally just make a list of the ways that people suffer. And, and then, uh, and I didn't have to say much and people started picking up on those and saying, Hey, you mentioned in your sermon about this thing. That's what they hear. They hear where their suffering is and they latched onto it and they ran with it. And I was shocked. And I've actually told pastors, it's like, just mention it as something that God cares about. And he likes to bring hope and healing to these particular things. You don't have to do a sermon on sexual abuse or abuse. Just mention it that God cares you're not, it's not outside the scope of his concern and his, his ability to heal and see what happens. And people, every time they, they people start, they, they actually think, well, I think I might be able to trust my pastor. They want to trust their pastor. They want to trust their leaders. And if you give them a small reason to, they will run with that. Mm, that's good. And the other thing, too, is if you have a pastor that is um, well-educated on the issue, even just a little bit, you'll oftentimes have victims that will come up and say, this thing happened, you know, so-and-so many years ago. I'm not quite sure. And because um, for so long, you know, maybe just thinking, well, what happened wasn't so bad or I never was hit or my sexual abuse wasn't maybe the typical sexual abuse. It wasn't the stranger in the bushes. So there's all those myths and misconceptions that are around these both of these issues. So if you have a pastor or if you have a team of 
you know, well-equipped lay leaders that are able to say, well, actually, let's look at what you're telling me. Let, let me walk through this with you and let's understand this. Many times victims are sitting there thinking, well, mine wasn't so bad, but they're suffering under the weight of it. So if you have a pastor that understands, they'll be able to really educate and help walk a victim through the, just through the healing process. Um, I wonder, because every pastor is going to deal with this because of the prevalence of either domestic violence or sexual abuse or both, what would you say are the, are the first things a pastor needs to do upon hearing of an accusation? So, for instance, if somebody in, um, in the congregation where I pastor comes to me and says, this is what is happening to me, either domestic violence or, or, or sexual abuse, what, you know, I, I know that there are certain legal responsibilities that would be helpful to hear for guys to know but but also pastorally what are the first things i as a pastor ought to do in response to that accusation particularly i would say if i really don't have any frame of reference for it so so if if it's for me out of thin air seeming and and i have no indication from that family that would ever give me a clue to that mm-hmm. you know um i obviously i don't want to say oh come on i know your dad that didn't happen or whatever but what are, what are the first things I, as a pastor, ought to do in response to a claim of, of abuse or, or, or violence? I, I got a few. Do you want to go first? You want me to go, Lindsay? What? Well, you go first, and then I'll just ta- tag onto it. It's fine. Everything I'm saying, I learned from Lindsay anyway, so it yeah. doesn't matter. Um, the first thing internally I want pastors to do when they hear that is to assume that it's true. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing. Now, again, of course you don't know. You haven't seen this. And here's the deal. The reason you haven't seen it is because most perpetrators are masterful at hiding it and blaming the person who they're they're sinning against. And so they they've made the person who's being abused feel like they're to blame. And so you the goal is for no one to see it. So what you need to do is assume that it's true. The good news behind me telling you that is that uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse are are not. Uh, frequently falsely reported. They're they're like all other crimes. They're falsely reported at the same rate or even less than other crimes. So if someone's telling you that, I mean, it's hard for anyone who's being abused to have the courage to say anything to anybody because they're afraid that they're going to get blamed or shunned and they feel shame. So uh, there's already, for people who have been abused, there's already a sense of shame that they have to break through. People, people who, so there's, therefore, there's not a lot of people who are doing false reporting and false stories. Now, Lindsay heard of one. I've heard of one in the, in the years that we've been involved in this. There could have been more, but I just don't hear a lot of them. So one is assume they're true. Um, two, you, you want to ask, ask them, are you safe? You know, is this something, you know, is there has been a threat? Are, are you safe now? And then you want to communicate Something like, I am sorry, um, this is a, you know, I like framing, I like call, I like calling it what it is and saying, this is a, this person is sinning against you and I am sorry for what you're going through and, and indicating some type of compassion. And then, you know, there are some things practically that we can do next. And uh, so, you know, assume it's true. You know, are you safe? You got to let them know, are you safe? And I, I'm concerned about your safety. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, let's get to work and get some practical stuff going. So, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, just 
to jump on what Justin said, the assuming that it's true, just the very simple phrase of I believe you is huge for both victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence. Just the I believe you phrase. Um, and then, of course, you can, you know, unpack the story later and get, you know, more details if you have any hesitations, just because, you know, I know this family, they would never do this. But just having the victim come to you so vulnerable and full of fear and shame, just saying I believe you is huge. But also, I would let pastors know, and I would want them to know, you don't have to be, you know, just the prime resource for them. I would make sure that you have a community um, like a safety net that you have reached out in your community and you know the places to refer these women that you can say, hey, listen, Susan, you know, good over at the domestic violence shelter. She's fantastic. I've met her. Let's call her. Let's get you in there to meet with her. She is a professional. I, I know that she deals with this every day. This is what she studied. Let's go meet with her because she can help walk you through all the options because I wouldn't want a pastor to feel like the weight of, oh my goodness, I got to handle going to court. I got to help them with medical and the children. So there are great resources in the community that I think churches need to just make a bridge with that they would have that connection. And I see, I saw that all the time in the past that these secular nonprofits are like, well, churches don't really want to work with us and we don't want to work with them. But how beautiful would it be if a pastor could say, I know this, this person, I know this group over there, let's go. They will be great. They are awesome. I, I know that you'll feel safe and loved there. Whether or not they go into a shelter program or not, it's a resource that's in your community. So I think that that's one thing pastors and churches can do is make those connections so you will know where you can refer people. And Lindsay and I have walked with numerous men and women like that because I'm not, I don't want to encourage pastors just to hand people over and say, hey, I'm going to refer you and good luck and I'll, I'll be your pastor from a distance. What that looks like is having, having an expert re- alleviate the burden on a lot of the practical stuff about legal, medical, things like that. So you could, and, but you walk with them. I've, it's been really neat, uh, you know, talking to, I've called numerous domestic, domestic violence shelters on behalf of women. After we called the cops, the next thing I'm doing is I'm calling the domestic violence shelter on her behalf at her request and say, hey, I'm her pastor and this is what we're doing now. And every single time I've, I've been affirmed by them saying, this is so wonderful yeah. that the pastor is doing this. And if we can do anything else to support your church like this, let us know. Yeah. And so, it's, it, so we're not encouraging like, oh, yeah, just refer them out. Right. All that, it actually frees you up to serve as their right. pastor. And then Lindsay mm-hmm. did bring up the thing about believing and listening. There was a study that said, hey, you know, people who are victims of abuse, what are the top 10 things that were beneficial for you? And number one on the top of the list was being listened to by someone in their community. I th- I'm thinking cops, counseling. I mean, there, were, there was a list of amazing things. The number one by far was the fact that other people carried their burdens, their friends, their family, their pastor, their neighbor, somebody who they trusted listened to them. And it was shocking when I saw that, and uh, and I believe it. But yeah. having having a resource of stats and re- results and research proving that, I mean, that's encouraging to pastors. Your job, one of the jobs, is to listen to that person, and then you can reply later as as their minister. Yeah. What special conditions might apply if we're dealing with child sexual abuse? Uh, Justin Lindsay, because that it's one thing to have an adult come to you and say, you know, my husband is is beating me up or my husband is, is you know, raping me. Mm-hmm. What, what if you're dealing with 10-year-old, a 12-year-old? Now, again, I'm assuming there are clear legal reporting requirements here, so we'll assume that you've got to inform the police. Mm-hmm. But what, what special approach 
pastorally would would you recommend in those kind of situations? It, it, uh, it's going to be different based on if the abuse is from inside the family or outside of the family, because if it's outside of the family, you are suddenly pastoring the entire family through a lot of suffering and anger and resentment and guilt. Um, the parents mm-hmm. frequently will be thinking, and there many times there could have been something they would have, they should have done. And, uh, and so there, you have to deal with that sense of there is true. Um, this horrible thing happened because you were careless, but not all the time. Sometimes it's just, you know, an, an evildoer doing evil deeds. Um, so you have to deal with a lot of issues of pastoring the entire family. And a lot of that comes with, um, helping for me, it looks like helping teach the parents to proclaim the gospel so they can actually do that to their child. I can do it. I can tell that child, however old they are, you know, God's a good father. And this is, this, uh, you're, you are pure and clean because of the work of Christ and you have a hope and you should not despair because of the road. I can apply the person and work of Jesus to that child, but I, I need the parents. As a minister, I want the parents to do, uh, learn how to do that instead of, um, instead of relying only on some good advice. There's some great advice of things that you can do to help cope with some of the effects. In addition to some of those very practical things, spiritually, I want the parents to jump in there. If the, if the perpetrator is a family member, now you are in a hornet's nest of, this is a mess because you're frequently, you'll have um, either a desire to hide it. And uh-huh. if it's a, if it's the, if it's a, you know, grandpa or the brother or keep it inside the family. So there's a lot more shame being heaped on the child and a lot more shame for the family that's going on. So, it's a different monster if it's the perpetrators within the family. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more um, confronting work in applying the truth of the law to uh, the, you know, you're trying, at some points I'm just saying you, you cannot hide behind the idolatry of your family's good name at this point at the expense of your child. And I'm, I'm basically dropping the hammer of the law on the people, hoping that it might shatter and soften some hearts and start getting to, to the truth. Yeah, and I would just add that the priority, you know, at any point, but the priority is always the victim. And so pastors oftentimes have that difficult, you know, I've got this perpetrator in my congregation. I've got this victim. What do I do? The priority is always going to be the victim. And so protecting the victim and protecting other children. And oftentimes we've heard stories where, you know, they'll continue to let the perpetrator come to that church. And that could be a whole other radio show. But I think just letting the pastors know, you know, keep the focus on the victim. What is the victim needs? Whether the victim's 10, 30, 100, you know, it's always what does the victim need? And that's my priority. But also just, you know, this is a ministry of long suffering. And when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault, you may walk with a victim through this for the rest of her life. And so the whole healing process doesn't look the same for every particular person. And um, I would say the pastor gets support so you don't feel alone because this is, it's tough. It's, it's it can be It can be frustrating. And I can say that just because, you know, I came from a home of domestic violence. And oftentimes it's like, mom, why don't you just leave this situation? And so feeling frustrated as a kid like that, how much, you know, I can understand a pastor. Why does she keep going back? Why is she still? Um, and so the more a pastor can educate themselves on the dynamics and trying to understand how oftentimes this is just, generations of learned behavior, generations of abuse that this person's dealing with. What a privilege to be able to walk in that with a victim, but also 
it's it's tough. And yeah. so getting support. Yeah. And I would imagine I, I would imagine also that pastors really need to be admonished on this, that when a, abuse shows up at their church, they need to be very, very vigilant to resist any temptation to protect the brand mm-hmm. of their church, yes. to, to resist that at all costs for the sake of not only the sake of the, of the victim, but for the sake of their continued witness to Christ. Right. I think that's one of the things that struck me about some of the sexual abuse stuff that's emerged in evangelical Protestant churches is that the, the sympathy for the victim seems almost like a throat clearing, right. which then goes to sympathy for the godly man who are being impacted, as godly men in inverted commas there, who are being impacted by what's going on. I think, you know, if nothing else, the lion's share of attention and sympathy has to be given to the victims. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if there are good men being being pulled in against their wishes by it, the lion's share of, of sympathy has to go to the victims yes. of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin, just changing the, the subject now as we, we start to draw things to a close, um, I know that you and Lindsay, you've co-authored these two books that are frankly excellent, and I, I recommend them to anybody listening who wants a, a good introduction and guide to the kind of abuse issues you deal with. But you're also authoring uh, a children's book, uh, God Made All of Me. wonder if you'd like to just, uh, as we close, talk the listeners through what the book's about, what you're hoping to achieve, uh, why they should go out and buy it and read it. Well, it, it's, yeah, God made all of me. And what it's doing is, what we realized is we have two children who are four and six, and we, we were looking for books like this for them, and we found out there's either uh, Christian books that are don't really address it except kind of vaguely, and it's really bad illustrations, or there are non-Christian, they're not anti-religious, they're just not, not religious, but it, it good illustrations, does a good job on it, and we thought, man, it'd be really good if there was a resource out there for parents that had great illustrations. We, we have a great illustrator uh, with some good applied theology, but not in an obnoxiously like, you know, how do you, you don't need to make like a Christian version of, of this book, but having it informed by their faith would be nice. And so mm-hmm. that's why we, what we're doing is applying a, a doctrine of creation that mm-hmm. God created everything and it was originally good. And that includes your body and that includes your private parts as a child. And what we're trying to do is help parents walk their children through having a view of their body and that their body's good. And that, that, and, and so the whole book's really about inappropriate and appropriate touch and encouraging children to become more comfortable to say, no, that's not good touch. That's not appropriate touch. And to, to let them know that they can talk about it. So we go through and we try to teach. We're trying to teach children the proper names of their body parts because that's a very helpful thing to actually – it normalizes it. It doesn't, it doesn't become some right. cute nickname like, oh, it's your fluffy fluffy. It's like, no, it's, <laughs> it's your penis. It's not a fluffy fluffy. It's not, it's not your little I – mean, yes, and in our, we're, we're playful in our house. We're not sitting around like being goofy. Like we're not always serious, but there's a time to play it. And part of, part of playing it makes it normal too. But we, we want to normalize that. We want them to know that God made that part and all of your parts, and there's a dignity to your body, and other people aren't allowed to hurt your body, and sometimes they hurt by doing wrong touches, and, and you should tell someone you trust, like mom and dad, and you don't get in trouble. And, and so that the big idea was just helping, giving parents a tool to help protect their children, help the children uh, protect themselves 
from perpetrators. That's great. That's and to actually ground it in a doctrine of creation. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it, so it has, and the, good, the nice thing is, I mean, great illustrations. It actually has an appropriate Bible verse that fits nicely if it fits with the theme. So uh, what we wanted people to do, we wanted Christians to read the book and, and look at it and say, oh, wait, this is a full theology of all of life. Of, you know, like the Bible applies to this. This doctrine of creation applies to body parts and to touch. And so it's more holistic in the sense of, so there's, it really is based, you know, and only, you know, it, it is a very theological book, just a children's book right. and about a particular issue. So it's applied theology for children, I guess. I'm sure many parents will find that to be a really helpful tool because it can be uncomfortable to to talk about those things and you don't really know when to introduce that kind of language with your children. So thank you for writing that. And um, I'm just so glad to have the other resources that you two have written together. And I've, I've loved listening to you guys talk on some other programs. And so thanks for coming on today and talking to us about this topic. I just wanted to thank our listeners. And um, if you would visit our website at mortificationofspend.org, we can have a list of those resources for you as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to download Not In My Church, Tackling Sexual Sin and Sexual Sinners with Gratitude by David Garner from the 2015 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. On the next episode, the hosts use an old book to talk about new issues in the church. Those churches that do not have a strong sense of self-identity, which requires, of course, a clear polity and an elaborate confession of faith, stand very little chance of being able to I would suggest keep their people on board, given all of the cultural pressures that are coming. And secondly, offer an articulate and well-thought-out response to many of the cultural challenges. All that and more next time. Are you two ready to play the marriage game? We are ready to play I'm the marriage Carl game. Carl and Todd. I'm married and Carl's <laughs> married. Okay, um, Todd, uh-huh. when Carl says, honey, they're playing our song, <laughs> what <laughs> song are they playing? Um, well, knowing that Carl is loves Elton John as much as I do, I would, I would have to say, I guess, Tiny Dancer. Ooh. Carl, did he get that right? Ooh, that. <laughs> I'm almost inclined to phone my lawyers at this point. <laughs> it's, I, I think for Todd and myself, it's got to be Rush's Working Man. There you go, Working Man. Working Man or, 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 working or Free Will yeah. by Rush. Free Will, nice Pelagian song, nice Pelagian song. Okay, Todd, close your eyes. Mm-hmm. Carl, what color are Todd's eyes? And what is his shoe size? Um, his eyes are bloodshot, generally. <laughs> uh, and his shoe size... All that pipe smoking. I'm guessing 15. <laughs> He's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Todd, 
What does Carl think he has the most of? A good sense of humor, a good sense of time, a good sense of style, or none of the above? He he thinks he has all of those things. <laughs> that is correct. The answer all is correct. I, I cannot deny it. All of the above. <laughs> okay, one more. Um, Carl, what is Todd's Achilles heel when it comes to food? Todd's Achilles heel when it Veggie burgers. <laughs> we were we went to this restaurant at lunchtime, and he actually said to me he'd rather go to the other restaurant because his actual the actual quotation was the veggie burger there looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> you sit upon a throne of lies. <laughs> you smell of beef and cheese. Uh, uh, All right, that'll be a good end time. Oh my. <laughs>